Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you all again this week. I trust you had a good week. We are resuming our study in Hebrews, still in chapter 2, so if you'll turn to Hebrews 2 with me, we'll begin there. We'll start this week by reading the same verses we read last week, verses 5 through 18. So Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you again as your people this morning, thankful that you've brought us through another week, guiding us as our shepherd. We thank you for bringing us here this morning to consider your word, to meditate on our God. We ask that as we open your word now, that you would help us to Put behind us for right now the things that have happened in our week, 
and that you would enable us to begin this new week with minds that are set on your word. We ask that you would reveal to us this morning more of the glory of Christ. Take our hearts, we pray, off of ourselves and put them on you, the one for whom and by whom all things exist. We pray that you would be glorified now in our time together. We ask that you would guide it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we spent most of our time in verses 10 and 11. And there were two main ideas that we, we considered there. The first one being the, the phrase that Christ was made perfect through suffering. And we spent a good bit of time looking at that and noting that that verse is not speaking of him being made sinless in his person, but of him being perfected or becoming completely qualified for his role as the founder of our salvation. And second, we looked at verse 11 and a very closely related idea that Christ is the one who sanctifies, and that he has one source or is of one one nature with those whom he sanctifies. And here we look specifically at Christ's role as our high priest. We went to Hebrews 10 and looked a little bit about what the author says there of Christ sanctifying his people by his own blood. And we noted how in Hebrews 2, it is necessary for Christ to be the one who sanctifies. It's necessary for him to be our high priest, that he become man. And we concluded last week by noting that everything we read in chapter 2, everything that we read about Christ, his ministry, his work, all of that takes place for one primary reason, and that reason is that little phrase in verse 10, that God is bringing many sons to glory. So I'd like to begin our time today by coming back to that phrase, in bringing many sons to glory. And I'd like us to consider a little bit about what all is included in that phrase. In our text, it's, you can pass over it very easily. It is given as the main reason behind what's going on, but it's not expanded at all. All we know is that God is bringing many sons to glory. So I want us to go back to the very beginning of Hebrews, to Hebrews 1. And we'll just go through this very briefly. But I want us to consider the word son and how the author of Hebrews has been developing this idea of sonship in the first chapter. And I think once we go through that, when we consider God bringing many sons to glory, we'll be helped a little bit. So back at the beginning of chapter 1, since we spent a lot of time here, we won't go into this in much detail, but we read this in 1 verse 1. 
that long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So here is our first occurrence in the book of this word, Son. And what's the very first thing that we know about the Son? We know that he is the final revelation of God in contrast to the prophets. But then after we have the Son introduced as this finality of revelation, the first, the first thing that we're told about him is that he is appointed the heir of all things. So we read there in verse 2 that in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. So you have two very closely related ideas. You have Christ the Son, and as a result of him being the Son, he is the heir of all things. God has appointed him as the heir of all things. Now, when we read this, we need to remember or keep in mind that when Scripture speaks of Christ as the Son, this is something inherent to the very identity of who Christ is as a person. He is the Son of God. And you cannot think of Jesus in any other way outside of him as a son. All that he does, he does as the son of his father. All that he says, he says as the son of his father. So the idea of Jesus Christ and the idea of the Son and all that goes together with the idea of sonship, those two things can't be separated scripturally. It's in the very makeup of who God is as a trinity, that he is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So when we read of that second person, the Son, we need to to keep that in mind. So we read that the Son is the heir of all things, and we've considered previously that there is a connection between what Christ does on earth for us and his receiving his inheritance. And we see that just in verse 3. In the end of verse 3, you read this, that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So again, you have that idea of inheriting. He's inherited a name. And as we've considered previously, the name itself that he inherits from God the Father is the name of Son. And we have a connection here in this verse that Christ sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's a, it's a, a royal place. He sits down as a, a co-ruler with the Father as a result of making purification for sins. After he has accomplished his work on earth, now he is glorified and sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In verse 5, we hear the name Son again. We read, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And again, we've considered previously that this verse is referring to the resurrection of Christ, where he is, as Paul says in Romans, declared to be the Son of God in power in his resurrection. 
So we have these, these ideas connected now of Christ as the Son inheriting and Christ as the Son accomplishing his work on earth and that his accomplishment of the work that God gives him to do, once he finishes that, now he receives, in a sense, as a reward, he receives his inheritance. So one more verse to consider from chapter 1. We read in verse 8. We've just read that God makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. And then coming to verse 8, we read this. That of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So again, we see the Son, and in this verse, we see the Son as ruling. We see him being addressed in the context of the Old Testament. Um, This is being spoken to God. The author here quotes it as God speaking to his Son, saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And so we have the Son in these two verses now, being anointed by the Father because the phrase given here is the reason is because he has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So because of his accomplishment of final righteousness, because of his moral perfection, he is anointed by God. And now the Son, the heir of all things, finally receives that inheritance and rules over it with a scepter of uprightness. So in each of these instances, just to bring this back to our minds again, there's three main things. The first one, Jesus is a son. And you can't think rightly of him apart from that idea of sonship. Secondly, as a son, he is the heir of all things. And as we read in chapter 2, Speaking of God, the Father is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. So the Son, as the Son of that one for whom by whom all things exist, is now the heir of all things. And lastly, Jesus, the Son, as the heir of all things, receives his inheritance as the reward for what he accomplished on earth for his people. So with all this in mind regarding the Son and his inheritance, let's read verse 10 again in chapter 2. 2 verse 10 we read, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So all through chapter 1, we read of the Son, and then we come to chapter 2, and we have introduced many sons. And in chapter 1, Jesus is presented as the Son of God. In chapter 2, we, his people, are presented as the many sons of whom? Of God. Because the verse says that it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, bringing sons to himself, makes the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
So what is it in chapter 1, the idea of being a son is inseparably connected to the idea of being an heir. And that's a, that's a scriptural concept that all through scripture, to be a son is to be the heir. So when we read then that now we are part of this group of many sons being brought to glory, then it's a natural question to ask, if we are sons, then what is our inheritance as sons? So I want us to look at the very end of chapter 1, just in passing. But we read at the kind of the conclusion of Paul's argument, the author of Hebrews. I don't actually think it's Paul. That slipped out. The author of Hebrews writes at the end of chapter 1, kind of concluding his argument that Christ is greater than angels. He says this, Are they, the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's kind of the first time in Hebrews that God's people directly are spoken of. You have in verse 9 that, that Christ is anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. So you have kind of a reference to his people. But the first real clear reference is here in verse 14. And God's people are spoken of as those who inherit salvation. And so the first thing, at least in Hebrews, the first thing that we as the sons of God are inheriting is salvation itself. And as we go from chapter 1 right into chapter 2, we are those who inherit salvation And so, we are not to neglect that salvation that we have become inheritors of. We should not neglect our inheritance. Now, as we we go on from from that, for we've we've been considering in chapter 2 in a lot of ways, what is our salvation? If we're not supposed to neglect it, what is it? If perseverance comes through paying attention to the truths of the gospel, then by, by meditating on them, studying them, in, in a sense, our consideration of those truths is how our mind is renewed and how we persevere in faith when we encounter difficult circumstances. So we won't spend too much time right now looking at what does it mean to inherit salvation, but I want us to consider something else here that we inherit. And this will take us back to something we studied a few weeks ago. But I want us to consider us as believers, as sons of God, inheriting the world to come. And this is going to touch back on our discussion of dominion, man being created with dominion over the earth. In the end of Luke 3, we have this genealogy of Christ. And it starts with Christ and goes all the way back to Adam. But what's interesting is the way that that genealogy ends... These are the last few names. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And that's a a very interesting statement that Adam is described as being the son of God in creation. And this brings us back to another, another idea of, that we've talked about, of Christ being the second and more perfect Adam 
that Adam is created with dominion over the earth, loses it through sin, and Christ comes as the second Adam to regain what the first Adam lost. And Christ, the second Adam, in an eternal sense, a Trinitarian sense, is the Son of God. And the first Adam, in a creational sense, is also spoken of as the Son of God. And that makes sense if we remember that this idea of Son is tied very closely with the idea of heir. Because Adam was created by God, in a sense, as the heir of the world, right? God, get, God creates an entire earth. He speaks all of creation into being, and he creates a man and appoints him to be the head and governor, the dominator of that creation. And so Adam, in a sense, becomes the heir of the world through creation, and he's spoken of as the Son of God. Now, we know from Scripture that Adam loses that, right? Adam loses that because he turns away from God in disobedience and in sin, and so he loses his place as the one who has that total dominion over all things. In a sense, he was God's ruling agent on earth. But when he rejects God's rule, he loses that place. So we know also from Scripture, regarding this first creation, that now that man has sinned and has lost his authority over that creation the end of that original creation now is destruction. And that there will come a day when, as author Hebrews writes later in chapter 12, that the things that are made, the things that are created, ultimately are removed and are destroyed. In the language of Scripture, they are shaken. But Hebrews gives us this assurance that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we are very right to think of that kingdom as a spiritual kingdom, that we are members of the kingdom of God through faith. But in another sense as well, there will come a day, scripturally, when God creates a new creation, a world to come. And so what we've seen in chapter, or in Genesis, of Adam over the first creation now we have ultimately fulfilled and, and real, realized in Christ over a second creation. And we've, we've noted how as Adam lost dominion, Christ regained it. But I think there's a, there's a key point we need to realize in that because we can, we can have this idea in reading through Hebrews 2, we can come away with the thought that Adam loses dominion Christ regains dominion and gives it back to mankind. Adam, as man, loses it. Christ gets it back and gives it back to man. And that almost sounds right, but it's, it's not quite. And this goes back to the necessity of Christ himself becoming a man, right? Christ, by regaining dominion himself, when Christ, all things are subjected to him, man, now again, has dominion over creation. 
And Christ gives it back to mankind only in the sense that mankind, redeemed mankind, shares in that dominion when they become a part of the family of God, when they become those sons who are brought to glory. So we are not sons of God apart from the Son of God. We become sons of God in the Son of God. And we do not have an inheritance that is apart from Christ. Our inheritance, we receive it in Christ. And so we have in in verse 10 again that it was fitting for Christ to be made perfect. It was fitting for him, verse 9 even, fitting for him to come and take on human flesh, to become like his brothers so that he might taste death and ultimately so that he might be given his inheritance of all things. All things are now subjected to him. Now, there's, there's two ideas kind of in this chapter. That as I was looking through this, I was getting a little bit confused because it seems like you have two spheres of thought, two circles of thought going at the same time. One, you have kind of the spiritual side of things, that Christ saves his people from their sin, but then you have this physical side of things, that Christ is regaining dominion over the earth. But when we think of the death and resurrection of Christ, we generally think of that directly tied to that first that first thing, that spiritual sphere, as it were, that by his death and resurrection, he saves us from sin. But Hebrews is applying it also to the physical side of things, that Christ, he makes purification for sin, and now he receives his inheritance of all things. Now he regains this dominion over the world. And how is it that those two things then are connected, in a sense, a spiritual side and a physical side, And this isn't the main part of our thought today, so I won't spend long on it. But the reason why dominion is lost in the first place, the reason why mankind no longer has dominion over the earth, is exactly the same reason why we need someone to save us from our sin. And think of it this way. Adam is created as God's, um, almost God's mouthpiece, as a ruler of, of creation, But his rule comes directly from God, and his rule comes from fellowship with God. We know that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, in the garden. Adam had a close fellowship with God, and he had a rule over the creation of God. But when mankind then is separated from God who created the world, when mankind is separated from the one for whom and by whom all things exist, Mankind can no longer have a rule over the things that belong to God. And so for Christ then to come and to do away with the separation between a perfect God and sinful man, for Christ to reconcile us to God in his body of flesh by his death, in all of the the spiritual things that we think along with that of being set free from sin, being released from eternal 
condemnation into eternal life, right with that, connected to that, is the reality now that now that that separation between mankind and God is gone, now that we are reconciled, the role of mankind in creation is now restored. And it's restored as we are united to Christ. Because mankind cannot make themselves perfect. Once they sin, their role is gone. And we need a perfect man to rule creation. You know, I think of, you know, in C.S. Lewis's Narnia, it's an interesting statement. I think it's in Prince Caspian. Aslan has created this world, Narnia. And in this world, he creates all of these talking animals and all these very interesting things. And then he brings in man to be the king of Narnia. And man ends up becoming corrupted and is no longer bad men come and are the king of Narnia instead of men who are following Aslan. And Narnia is thrown thrown into chaos and all of the talking animals are, they have this resentment toward mankind now. But there are some, in Prince Caspian, you have this debate between some of these animals that are still holding out hope that someday there will be a king, a, a man to come back and rule Narnia, and animals who have thought to themselves that actually Narnia doesn't need men at all. We just need the animals to go destroy all the men. But one of the animals makes this comment. He says that though Narnia is not man's country, it's a country for man to be king of. Which is kind of interesting. It's not man's country per se, but it's man's country to rule. Now the analogy breaks down a little bit, but it's similar, I think, with God's creation. God has created a world, and it belongs to him. It is his world. It is not man's world. But God has created it in such a way that it is man's world to be ruler of. So once man sins, for God's purpose in creation to be realized, for God's, uh, the end goal of mankind to be realized, mankind must be the one who is ruling over that world to come. But since he can't fix himself, he can't fix this problem that he's gotten himself into, there must be a perfect man. Which brings us back again to the necessity of Christ taking on human form. Moving on. As we finish our our study of sonship today, I think there's a passage we could turn to that would put some of these ideas together in a bit of a clearer way that might might help us when we come back to Hebrews 2. So if you'll turn with me over to Romans in chapter 8. There's a few things I'd like us to note here. Romans 8. Before we get, we'll spend most of our time toward the end of the chapter here, but I want us to note just a few things here in the beginning of, of Romans 8. We 
have some kind of core elements of the gospel that are presented here in this chapter. So even just starting at the beginning of Romans 8, we'll just read a couple verses here. We read this, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We'll end our reading there for right now. We're not going to spend much time really explaining these verses. Um, I just want us to consider just a few things. We have here a great reality of the gospel that we see in Hebrews, that God has sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh so that in us who walk by the Spirit, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. And what what is the ultimate end of this. Now, if we go to the end of his uh, paragraph here, verse 11, Romans 8 talks a lot about this dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit. And we who formerly walked according to the flesh, now living according to the spirit, and ultimately we only possess the spirit because of what Christ has done. So we read this in verse 11. That if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What we have here at the end of this argument, kind of, the end of this paragraph at least, is that those for whom Christ came to destroy sin, those whom Christ came to give his spirit to, those people, their ultimate end is being raised with Christ and ultimate glorification. And this is a, a, we think of spiritual resurrection, which which is a scriptural reality, but then there's also this reality in scripture of a future physical resurrection that God's people will experience. And we see that in this verse, that God, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will give life to our mortal bodies. Our mortal bodies is a phrase that only refers to this stuff that we carry around. This is our our mortal flesh, our mortal, diable bodies, as it were. But those themselves will be raised by the one who raised Christ from the dead. Now, here's another interesting parallel. Christ, as the Son, receives his inheritance in his resurrection, his physical resurrection. Now we, as his people, we have inherited salvation, but this future reality of our inheritance, of inheriting the world to come, ultimately will come on that last day when we too are raised physically with Christ. Anyway, moving on. 
as we get into verses 12 through 17, we'll read, let's just read these six verses really quick. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Why? In order that we also may be glorified with him. So what is, what is the final result of us having the spirit that raised Christ from the dead? This spirit is the spirit of adoption. This is the spirit who testifies together with our spirit that we are the children, the sons of God. And what does it mean for us to be sons of God? It means that we are his heirs, that we are fellow heirs with Christ. And what's the ultimate end of all that? That we might be glorified with him. Sounds like Hebrews 2. That God bringing many sons, where? To glory. That's our final end, to be glorified with Christ. Many sons, fellow heirs with Christ, in bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting then that Christ become like us and suffer, be perfected in his office as our high priest. And why? Ultimately, that we might be made like him. Sons of God with him, fellow heirs with him. Now let's jump down to Romans 8 to a very familiar passage, Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why do we know this? We know this for this one reason. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And why did he predestine them? What's the goal of their predestination? He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So why is it that God chose a people in the first place? So that they might become like his son and that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers. That the son of God would be the first of many sons of God. So when we read through scripture and we read through what is it that God has designed for us as his people, God has intended that we, through faith in Christ, should become a part of his family, that we should become sons together with his son, that we might inherit with his son. You think of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. We have become, in Christ, one with him, and we ultimately will reign with him if we endure Now look at verse 30. It says, go back to verse 29, I guess. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those 
whom he justified, he also glorified. Hebrews 2, what is God doing? What is God doing in history? As we look all the way through the course of human history, nations rise, nations fall, empires reign for a while and they're destroyed. One of the the old church fathers, Augustine, wrote this famous work, The City of God. And in that book, he goes through this, this battle, in a sense, of you see the city of man rising and falling throughout history. But on the other side, you have this city of God that forever and ultimately reigns and endures. And so as we look through history and we say, why do we see so much trouble and suffering? Why do we see so much death, destruction? Why, why can there never finally be a, a, a perfect anything on earth? Because God is about the business of bringing his people to glory. That's his goal. His goal is to bring us to glory in Christ, and that in Christ we might reign and have dominion over another world to come, and in doing so, glorify God. That is, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of the day, God might be all in all. So what's the conclusion then of our place here in Christ? I think we could let Paul kind of conclude this time for us. What does Paul say right after verse 30? That those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what's the result of that? What's, what's the application to our thinking? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That brings us back to how we ended last week. Why has God done all these things? Why has he ordained that these things be the way they are? Because he loves us. 
and he loves us in Christ. And guess what? We may change. We may falter. We may sin. But if we're loved in Christ, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we're loved in him, then when are we loved? We're loved yesterday and today and forever. So as we go through our lives, what does this have to do with perseverance? I started this as a series on perseverance and feel like I haven't actually done much with perseverance. But what does this have to do with perseverance? As we go through life and we experience the trials of life, Romans 8 there, tribulation, peril, nakedness, sword, famine, danger, all these things, as we experience suffering, suffering in our families, suffering of people, friends, family members who do not know the Lord, suffering financial hardship, anything that comes to us in our lives, we know two things. One, that God's purpose for us in Christ is that we be made like Christ. And secondly, we know that this world is the way that it is. We suffer because of sin, but that is a problem that has been remedied. And the final solution to it is still awaiting us. And if our minds are not renewed with these truths of Scripture, when we see things on earth not doing what we want them to do, it is extremely easy to become discouraged and lose sight of the fact that there is coming a day when every tear is wiped away and we stand forever rejoicing in the presence of our God. And in an ultimate sense, it's by fixing our minds on the Word of God, fixing our minds on the truths that He has given us, the salvation that He's revealed to us, if we are continually paying attention to that, not neglecting it, then that is the means that God has chosen by which He preserves His people. He saves us by the gospel. He preserves us by the gospel. And by looking to Christ, we do persevere to the end. Well, out of time. It's a good time to, to be done, I think. So let's close in prayer and we'll be finished. Father in heaven, we truly do thank you that we can call you our Father. That you have given us your Spirit a spirit of adoption. Lord, we thank you for Christ, that in him we are your sons, that we are brothers of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would make this truth impressed on our hearts, that we would live in light of what you've revealed, that you would make it our desire to be more like our Savior, even in suffering. Help us to look to him now. In Jesus' name, amen.